You're listening to KVRU LP Seattle, broadcasting on 105.7 FM and streaming live on kvru.org. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Nourish, a podcast that puts power in the hands of communities to document their stories of social and political grassroots organizing. It is through this storytelling that we cultivate a deeper connection to our movements. I'm your host, Nika, and as we enter into our final episode of this season of the Nourish podcast, I'm so grateful to be closing this chapter with today's guest, Paris Chapman, a local transformative justice organizer and someone I'm grateful to call a friend. Here at Nourish, we often talk about moving toward or building toward a better world. And today, I really wanted to take that idea of a better world and talk about what it looks like in practice. What does this better, safer, more accountable world look like, both in our day-to-day interpersonal interactions, and what does it look like on a larger systemic level? As Paris and I got into this conversation, it naturally brought us into a conversation about food and how our relationships with food shape our relationships to each other and our ability to show up in this better world. Take a listen. All right. Hello. Hi, friend. So here we are. Here I am with Paris. And I think, oh, before we jump into the actual questions... I would ask you to introduce yourself, name, pronouns, maybe what your organizing looks like. And, you know, as we're here uh, talking about transformative justice, like why have you entered this conversation? What about your work brings you here? Okay. Um, my name is Paris Chapman. I am born and raised between Seattle and Tacoma slash Spanaway and all in between. What does my organizing look like? I have really oh this is such a fun question (laughs) I'm just like thinking about how I didn't even know that I was organizing other people told me that I was organizing and then I started doing my research and I was like oh I guess I am I just didn't uh I didn't like being having to fight as a kid or as an adult or uh I didn't like the systemic that white women would do to me at nonprofits or my coworkers. So my my organizing mostly has just looked like talking a little bit of shit and then uh, eventually talking enough shit that shit changes and and then trying to figure out ways like as I evolve, find ways to pull people in and talk about like what is the root of this? Why is this happening? And not allowing it to continue as a pattern because you know something can happen one time but for me I just tend to focus more so on like okay this isn't just happening to me it's happening to multiple people it's been happening to multiple people over time it's been happening to a particular group of people so for me a lot of my organizing looks like uh, storytelling and assessing patterns and then figuring out how to make sure that those patterns uh, aren't able to negatively impact or harm folks. And eventually I learned that there's like a whole title for like getting to the root of the issue, which is transformative justice. And that's one way to answer it. Yeah, part of me wants to just like dig into, I love hearing about like, I don't know the way that you tell the story of like, I didn't know I was organizing. And like, um, I think there's this like natural story that happens. And I don't, I don't think any organizer, I've heard this from a lot of people, like I don't think any organizer 
is like, I'm going to do this because I want to be an organizer. It's like, usually I want to do some sort of work or I am doing some sort of work. And what people usually call that work is organizing. And so, I don't know, I'm always appreciative of that story. I think it always feels like accurate to a lot of our experiences. But like you said, like what that brought you to, what being, you know, getting to the root of an issue brought you to uh, is transformative justice. And like I said before, the reason why I wanted to, we wanted to dedicate like an entire episode of this podcast to kind of what is TJ, like what is this thing called transformative justice is because we wanted to not only just be talking about what organizing is from this very like kind of bird's eye view, like I think often it can be like this like Instagram view, like we want to build a better world and like we want but we don't talk a lot about like the nitty gritty of like what a better world looks like and like what it takes and how do we get there and I think TJ at least in my experience is in just barely scratching the surface um, in my own life like so many of those answers I feel like have been um, started to come up or like pathways to an answer have started to come up through my developing an understanding of transformative justice and so that's how I got here. And we heard a little bit about how you got here. And so I think just to kick off the questions, like, how would you... Can I actually expand a little bit before? Yeah, please. Um, because I think that it's important for folks to know that, like, there is a whole framework sometimes for the ways that we we go about moving in the world. And particularly, I think sometimes because I'm not like college or university educated, there are a lot of things that I think and do that I don't necessarily have like a box or a framework to put it in. And I think that it's really important for people to know that for many reasons. But one being that like sometimes it's a lot easier to do the work or to um, to prove that you know how to do the work uh, when you have the framework and language, because there are people out here every day making money off of the stuff that we do that our communities have always done. And it's just, it's really nice to know that like, oh, I've been doing this for, I want to say for free, but like not in a capitalistic way, but like people are able to provide a living for themselves sometimes off of the things that we have to do in order to survive. And I think that it's a really shitty dynamic and that it's really important that we, we see that acknowledge it and do something about it and also like my background like just to elaborate a little bit on my background is that I came into violent prevention work through workforce development I was teaching people how to find jobs and labor and then I started to realize all of these intersections all of these things that were showing up that made it really difficult for people to get their needs met that made it really difficult for people to be in a position where they could get a job that would allow them to eat and have housing and all of their needs met because I was intersecting with like these violence prevention teams and whatnot. Some people took issue with it and were trying to tell me to stay in my lane, but then like my lane was not actually resolving issues. It wasn't actually getting at the root of things. And so I couldn't necessarily like just keep pushing people into labor systems and expecting shit to get better. I had to think about like, like where is this intersecting and how do we address it at those intersections and beyond and before those intersections instead of just assuming that like services and jobs are going to be the end all be all of poverty 
No, I appreciate that. And I think like, yeah, I think that in a world in which capitalism and neoliberalism has like brought us to the point at which people want to make careers out of quote social justice. Like, I think that story is important to to know that like, it wasn't like you woke up one day and were like, oh, I'm going to be a community organizer that works in transformative justice. But it was like, not that it like fell into your lap or anything, but it was it was like a progression of like the conditions that you were understanding yourself and our communities to be in what came of that and your your searching and your like seeking for something better and different was like this thing um now kind of getting into it just starting really basic like how would you describe transformative justice one of the ways that i think about transformative justice and i think that everybody's going to have slightly different definitions but like kind of what's at the core of it is uh looking at an issue and not treating it as like just this one time but like really looking at like what is the root of this why is this happening and first and foremost looking at the person or the 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 group whoever is harmed and saying what do you need first and foremost and then start asking questions about how that harm took place at all what made it possible um what is at the root of this so like that's like kind of like the concrete what you need for the philosophy of transformative justice and then like the actions and practices of transformative justice are so many but I think what's one of the things really important to know is that making sure that we are not focused on one way to do things that we are not focused on one way to prevent violence that we stay uh, accountable to change accountable to transforming things because it's in the title right but really making sure that we stay accountable to say like okay once we create this new world actually i really love this one workshop that actually illustrates transform justice so well adrian marie brown talks about it as like we can't stop at like utopia actually utopia and dystopia exist at the same time and every time we create a new world we have to be able to imagine what's good imagine what what we need in it and then imagine what the new challenges will be in that and so in that way we stay accountable to change we stay accountable to like who may be harmed in these new ways and these new systems and these new practices and we continuously stay in that growing and that learning so that's yeah that's one way to describe it the the adrian marie brown thing that you just brought up reminded me have you ever heard of the the book pet i'm i plug this book like everywhere it's by an author named Ikweke Mezi, and uh, it's, a, it's like a young adult novel. And I read it with a lot of youth before. Um, and it's about this girl who essentially grows up in what I think many of us would understand to be the utopia. Like it's, it's this idea that like we don't have violence anymore because like the angels, it has this, it has like kind of these religious undertones and it's like the angels got rid of all the monsters and like they've all, like it's like very abolitionist in its practice and like the description of like how they got there. But then like the, the whole story is that like someone comes and is looking for a monster and that the main character is like well monsters don't exist anymore we've been through this and i think i was just thinking of that story when when you were bringing up the adrian Marie brown thing of like well we have to keep thinking about like what problems arise in the worlds that we are creating because there will always be problems and there will always be accountability that needs to happen and like we can't just assume that like one day we'll have to like let go of that or like you know be free from that but like there is yeah, there's accountability that comes with the worlds that we're creating. Yes, indeed. There is, what you were telling me about that book reminds me of a series that I just watched called Creamery. I'm actually looking up the name of the the writer 
once I find her name, I will let you know. Uh, she's from New Zealand, and she basically wrote this series that was about white women coming into power and using wellness. Have you already, do you already know about this before I go into it? I don't think so. Okay. So it's basically about white women coming into power and using wellness as a way to dominate the world. And I mean, like, dominate violently. Yeah. It is, what I found funny about it was that I thought of it as like this, this like kind of futuristic uh, movie or this uh, futuristic series. And I told somebody about it and they were like, what do you mean futurist? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, oh my God. <laughs> I talk about this all the time. How did I miss it? It's so interesting to watch the ways in which they have an organization called wellness where like people, I don't want to ruin it for you. I'm not going to spoil it, but I will just say that it is so well done. If you do decide to watch it, if anybody listening to this podcast decides to watch it, I just want to offer a potential trigger warning because it does get really violent in some portions, but it is bought on to what my experience has been working with white women in nonprofit that they pull and act like it's just okay. I specifically, just to get into it, I specifically remember one of my previous managers pulling me into a room and berating me and telling me that that she doesn't go and talk to this executive or that executive and that I'm operating above my pay grade because I did choose to go and talk to somebody about something. And I was like, what? <laughs> excuse me I don't know like what you've had to do to survive shrinking yourself but that is not how I operate and you're not yeah we got into it but mm -hmm. I was just like mm, y'all need to really really think about what it is that you're doing and why you're doing it because mm -hmm. you're gonna try the wrong one yeah exactly and I, that's that's me and I'm the wrong one <laughs> one right here I'm just gonna start putting that on my name tags <laughs> yeah exactly Paris Chapman, they, them, the wrong one. Um, well, so, so something related to this kind of like broad description of transformative justice that you gave is like, like the basic, I think, philosophy is talking about like why harm happens or like getting to the root cause of harm or violence. And I wanted to ask kind of like for clarification of like what you mean by harm or what you mean by violence. Because I think there is the like, I think, especially like within anti-violence, we both work for anti-violence organizations who who um, serve or are connected to survivors of domestic abuse, for example, right? And I think that that is like what many people will think of, obviously, when they think of violence or when they think of harm is like this interpersonal, like intimate partner kind of harm. But yeah, what do you mean when you say harm or when you say violence? Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad that you asked because I, I always try to tell people like, I'm not waiting until somebody gets punched in the face. I'm also not waiting until somebody is, go is going without food. I'm looking at how do systems perpetuate violence? What are the ways in which poverty is a form of violence? What is the way in which a predominantly white institution with people of color in it or BIPOC folks in it you know, I, I like all the things about like BIPOC and POC and trying to figure out how to use what language works best, but like really being particular about understanding that when a white woman in a predominantly white institution says something about a person of color, that her power and her weight, the weight of what she says in that space is drastically different oftentimes than what a person of color can do or say, or like the impact that they can have on another person in that space. So I, I think about it all the time in terms of like, there was an, there was an incident 
uh, that I had with a coworker in which I was just thinking about how do I, how do I even begin to explain this? Uh, one of the systems that I think has been really uh, harmful towards people of color, particularly nonprofits, is like uh, review systems. And so I've seen people uh, have their annual review and then somebody writes something in there that's like actually carried with them throughout their career in that space or beyond that space. And because it's written on paper or because a person in this particular position uh, has said so, it has just a very different weight. I think that there's a more succinct way of saying this. When I think about harm, I'm thinking about power dynamics. I'm thinking about whether or not people are realizing that they have the ability to um, say or do things that can impact people's attitudes, ideas, thoughts, behaviors towards other people, or can create conditions in which people have to operate in a way that does not actually meet their needs or could become potentially violent just because now the space is conditioned to be transphobic, conditioned to be anti-Black, conditioned to not talk about what marginalized people in that space are going through. Yeah, there's just a way in which when I talk about harm, I'm acknowledging that there is interpersonal violence, people get physically assaulted, and I think that we know about interpersonal violence, we can see it pretty clearly. I think what's really important to also think about is what does environmental violence look like? What does it look like when people live in a space where they don't have sidewalks, where they don't have street lights? where the air is really shitty and you can't actually breathe it, where the water is undrinkable or at risk of becoming any of those things. What does it look like when somebody enters an institution where they are supposed to be getting educated or supposed to be working and their education or their ability to do their job is impacted by people's attitudes and behaviors and beliefs about them in that space? Are they able to then go on and complete their education so that they can get the job that gets them the money? Or do they get booted and go back to their hometown that may or may not be a safe space for them? You know, and then like the community is kind of stifled. And I really think about that particular thing a lot because some parts of where I grew up, it was either you go to the military or you go to community college. And those of my friends that ended up going to colleges that were outside of the areas that we grew up in, oftentimes were sent back within the year, within two years because they didn't have enough loans to complete that education. They didn't have a support network there. Um, the professors were really shitty towards them. Uh, some of them tried to go to private schools and the private school children uh, did not have any understanding. Like the kids on Mercer Island that think that all their trash is sent to South Seattle. Like there are little interpersonal things that become behaviors that become conditions. And so I'm thinking about how all of that wraps up into this. But yeah, once you start pulling at that thread of what is harm, there are so many things and you have to be able to look at the micro and the macro and dance in between. Mm. You have to be able to look at the micro and the macro and dance in between. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that because we are not living under one or the other, we are both like you and I are having this interpersonal interaction. You and I have our own interpersonal relationship while also existing in the conditions and the systems that we live in and how those conditions and systems impact you differently than they impact me. And that impacts how 
you and I have our interpersonal relationship, right? Like they are coexisting and intertwined all the time. Thank you for that. And I think it's also really important to talk about harm that happens intercommunally. Yep. <laughs> like I can say that that's an unpopular opinion, but I'm like, I know people that want to talk about this shit all the fucking time. It's really difficult to talk about on a public forum like a podcast. But I think what I want to what I want to kind of open up because it's not you it's not even unique to any one community. It's really just the fact that colonization and imperialism has pushed us to a space where we don't know all of the stories, the names, the contexts that our people come from. And so for some reason, we think that some of us weren't always here or that some of us don't belong here. And I particularly wanna talk about how colonized people oftentimes end up having to adopt white religions in order to survive. And then those beliefs, those ideas become systems or they were intended to be systems that eventually became systems for the people that were being colonized, all of that history. But eventually leads to saying that like, oh, what's up with all this new gay shit? What's up with all this new queer shit? Or like, trans people never did anything for me. As if trans people, as if gay and queer people have not always existed in our communities. And one of the particular things I like to point to when, whenever anybody says something like that to me, is have you actually done research? Have you actually ever been told about the names of the people that existed in your community? Like learning that there are indigenous names for queer people all over the continent of Africa is really important for me because then when people say, oh, this wasn't allowed here, this didn't exist here, and complicatedly so, some communities did not accept us all. And complicatedly so, again, so many people had words and names for us already. And to erase that history, to forget that history is violent because mm -hmm. then you're telling me that I don't exist or that anybody can harm me because I'm wearing a dress when not even just the trans and queer people in our community wore dresses, but everybody back in the day wore a dress because it was hot as fuck. <laughs> or we didn't wear anything at all because it was hot as fuck. And we didn't want these sticky ass clothes on our body. Once you start pulling at the string of like what harm is, there's so many things yeah. that start to show up. I have a question that was not part of the, the list I sent you, but I think like, I'm curious, how do you see the connection between um, these smaller interactions, these like everyday things that we do that align with the the values and the philosophy of transformative justice how do you see that leading to what we would call quote a better tomorrow how does that thread follow for you i think the word that i use often or like the phrase i use often is like a co-created liberation like how do we get to the point where our baseline is joy and happiness and having our needs met and I think that us having as many practices as possible to get there and really intentionally centering that becomes conditional or it becomes the conditions in which we live. So I think about like the scale. I, my friend taught me this phrase, the ABCs, the attitudes, behaviors, and conditions. 
what one person thinks, then another person thinks, and then that informs their behaviors. And then as time goes on, if there are a lot of people thinking and behaving in a particular way, it creates conditions. And so if we are able to consider what are the roots of things that are happening, what are the roots of the harms that are happening, and really center that we want to end that harm, make it not possible anymore, make sure that people have their needs met. And then once that happens, we want to think about what could potentially be happening in this new world that we're creating. There is a way in which that starts out as an idea, it starts out as a behavior, and then it becomes just the water that we're all swimming in. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. I think I'm I'm taking what you said and applying it to like the example you gave earlier about the attitude that kids in Mercer Island have about South Seattle that like, oh, South Seattle is like where my garbage goes, like it's where my trash ends up. And so the people then, the attitude I have about the people who live in South Seattle um, is a certain way. And then those attitudes turn into behaviors, turn into conditions for folks in the South End, right? That like people with decision-making power, let's say in Mercer Island or North Seattle or wherever, those attitudes and behaviors then become the conditions that folks are living under. And that like, what does it mean when from the jump, like the, the kids in Mercer Island are understanding that like the humanity of their neighbors in the South End, right? That like, it isn't just this place that the trash goes, but there's people that I care about there, that there are people who live there and inherently I care about the, the humanity of those people and how that like, yeah, that, that you can see the connections happening within those. Totally. You know, it, like what you're saying actually brings up another interesting point for me, which is the theory of transformative justice or the theory, like the theory of community versus the practice of community. <laughs> When I, <laughs> I am born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, and it is different building community here than it is in other spaces. It is so different. The way that I am loved when I go to Oakland in particular, when I'm in, when I'm in LA or when I'm in the Bay Area, it is drastically different. When I went to, I took a trip through the Gulf of Mexico and like stopped in Belize. And it was so funny to see the way that like there were folks braiding hair at the port and they kept, <laughs> and forgive me for this fucked up accent. They kept like talking, they were like, come get your hair braided, come get your hair braided. And like all these white people passing them by. And then this woman sees me and she's like, boy, when are you going to come get your hair braided? <laughs> and it was the way that she saw me. Like, she saw me and was like, that's family. Like, that, right. I know that person. And and not only that, like, because she was Black, I don't know if you know much about the history of Belize, but, like, there's a whole bunch of Black people, like, in this little small colony on the coast of Mexico. When I think of how, when I go to Oakland, it's not just the Black people that are seeing me. It's most people that I meet in those spaces that are seeing me and that are seeing me as human and that aren't trying to theorize their way into understanding me, but being comfortable with fucking up in front of me and then being accountable and saying, you know what, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have did that. Like there is such a difference between that and here in the Northwest where people are constantly reminding me 
of my experience and that they know what my experience is and that they're trying to do something about it rather than just being like, girl, do you want to come over for dinner? Do you want to throw a party? Like that is what happens in so many spaces that I really appreciate is that people are just like, oh yeah, let's just start talking about what the liberated thing is. Like, let's do the liberated thing. And I think that that's a really, really important distinction to have when you're talking about transformative justice or any other kind of organizing work, just that there's a difference between the theory of it all and the practice and how that impacts me as a marginalized person. Yeah. I just feel like a lot of what you're describing just like reminds me, it's just the, the, the identity politics that is like runs rampant in Seattle. <laughs> um, and I think it, it gets us stuck. It gets us stuck in like, the only thing we can think about is where we are and that we are stuck there and that these are the conditions we're stuck in and that these are the conditions that you are stuck in and that I am stuck in and the extent of our understanding of liberation is just existing within this. I feel like getting caught up in that kind of attitude is instead of just being like, oh, let's talk about the liberated thing and like do the liberated thing and become that and get to that and be that now. There's so much going off in my head about this, but I really want to highlight something that's really important to know about the theory versus practice is that it impacts all of us and it impacts the people who are marginalized also. And I think about this experience that I had that I like that I always am just like, there's a little bit of guilt or embarrassment in it for me, but I know that it's not my fault. I know that it it's a result of colonialism and all that comes through white supremacy, patriarchy, all the bullshit. Seattle is a segregated city and a lot of people don't know that. It is still very segregated. And the spaces where some of us did exist, AKA the central district, were being pushed out of that space. Whole history lesson there. But what I want to highlight is that I have in my mind, these ideas about where I'm going to see black people and where I'm not. And I specifically remember a good friend of mine taking me out to eat in Malibu and we passed a black person and I was like, oh, I didn't know there were black people in Malibu. And then over the course of the night, we passed multiple people. And then we went to this really expensive restaurant and I saw black people again. And I was starting to get angry with myself because the feeling, like the internalized feeling of shock did not go away. Even though I consciously was like, that's dumb. I shouldn't be thinking like that. Internally, the feeling of shock, the the unconscious idea that I didn't think I was gonna see people or maybe even to the extent that there might be an internalized idea that I shouldn't see people. I don't know how deep it runs, but I really don't like that that feeling exists within me. And I know that it's a byproduct of being in a segregated space that doesn't talk about the fact that it's segregated, that doesn't know how to gather, that doesn't know how to, how to practice being in community with people in a way that's accountable. And so you see like, how this has been internalized for me, but even thinking of like the externalization of it, which is that 
my families do not have very much property. Like we're black and it is what it is in the US. And I think about like my, my dad's mother's home in the central district. And I remember going over there years ago, probably around 2012 or so. And I was like talking to my aunt and I was like, auntie, I haven't seen, I've been here for like an hour and a half and I haven't seen one black person pass on the street. And she's like, oh yeah, it's changed, baby. Like it's different. And I was just like, I knew that it had, but I didn't know that it was that bad. Mm-hmm. And knowing the history of the Central District, that like we owned all of that. We're actually redlined into only buying in this area when it wasn't desirable property. And then now y'all want to come in and just take everything now that we didn't built it up. And y'all want to say that you want to be in community with us. Like you have all this theory, but you don't know how to actually practice being accountable to people if you think that just like coming here, pushing them out is the right way to do things. But many, many feelings. Right. Yeah, we've been talking about this dynamic of like, what TJ looks like in practice, what accountability looks like in practice. Like you just told the story about what not being accountable looks like now. And I wanted to ask what looks and feels different about a world in which accountability is more prevalent, in which transformative justice, not in theory, not in like a, everyone knows what TJ is, but like in practice, people are practicing what we understand to be transformative justice, what we understand to be accountability, what does that world look like and how does it feel different? Even on like a, I don't even wanna say anecdotal level, but just like even on a like, yeah, what do you imagine walking down the street to feel like, how do you feel like that would be different in, in a more accountable kind of community? Yeah, I think that like, I would be able to walk down the street and feel the way I do with some of my my closest friends. I grew up in a very multi-ethnic context. And so even considering that my like four best friends from high school that we still talk, like this is 15 years later, we've officially known each other for half our lives. And one of my friends is tomorrow, the other one is tomorrow Mexican. Um, The other one is Vietnamese and I'm Black. And the way that we can see each other for who we are as individuals, all of our differences and like support, celebrate, give space for each other to cry. One of the things that I now know that I struggled with for years because of my experiences with houselessness is that I know at this point in my life that I'm never going to be houseless again. Like between the four of us, if anybody harms me, if I don't have housing, if I don't have food, any of these things, I know that I have somebody to turn to. I know that I have a foundation that is strong for me. And I know that I have a foundation that's not only just going to be there for me, but that's going to celebrate me. That if I were to spin myself into a situation, that they're going to be like, you know what, you tried something, you're going to have to get your shit together. <laughs> but I'm really glad that you tried something and you can stay with me for as long as you need. But, you know, 
gonna be some rules like you're gonna have to help out around here and all that stuff you can't just you know like there's still accountability in it for me there's accountability in it for them and I think for me it's like the feeling the deep deep security and knowing the deep deep safety and knowing that I'm not gonna be on the street ever again oh yeah yeah that's the feeling yeah Thank you for that. I just feel like I can feel it. I can feel the, the deep security that you're talking about and how it really flips upside down our understanding of what it means to live in the world. Okay, last question that I have for you is how does food inform your current life and work? There's a part of me that wants to talk about how food creates connections and stories, and that's that's very much true. But I also think that it's important for us to look at the commodification of food and how it teaches us to how it teaches us to value people and things differently. Like the fact that the majority of our food or the majority of how we access food in the US is like through going to the grocery store. And the majority of grocery stores are like QFC, Safeway, Kroger, you know, all of these different chains. And they have the same shit. So when, when somebody brings produce or greens or meat or food that is different than what somebody else might eat or that, or that is prepared differently, there's there there could potentially be space for a great conversation around why these differences are so beautiful and celebrated but most often they're not people are like what is that people begin to other people begin to weirdify all of these different things and i think that it's really important to know that 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 like food is a political battleground that we either say we're going to celebrate each other and our differences or not we're going to set like I, I think that it's also important to think about the fact that in some parts of the world, food is not a commodity. And I, good example, I went to the Big Island, Hawaii Island, sometime last year, and like there's food growing on the streets in places, so like people don't actually have to go hungry, even if they go homeless. Like, and to think of how like I don't like there aren't that many spaces here where you can get food for free, so it's not like a given right or you know we value only the food that's like pretty and has no blemishes and what does that say about people and things with blemishes there's all these different ways in which i think that we should talk about how how the commodification of food in particular creates value systems whether it's i think that this person is weird because they're different or I only want to go to these food places. Like, and typically I only want, it's like saying that you only want to go to these white grocery stores, which if you don't know what mangosteen is, get into it. You're likely not going to find it in a white grocery store. I think of particularly that it's important to know that unconsciously the way that we gather food and prepare food is inherently political because it teaches us how to value people and the way that they practice their food ways, the many ways in which we gather, collect, and share food. Yeah, thank you. 
I just, I think back to what you said earlier about what a world that embodies transformative justice more wholly feels like to you would feel like people who look like you and don't look like you being able to care for you and being able to like have your back and, and to be able to seek security in people who both look like you and don't look like you. And I, I mean, I think there's a clear connection, at least to me culturally, in relation to food, that there is almost this, I know that I have a lot of like insecurities around sharing food with people. Just like growing up, Filipino and like being scared to take food to school that like my parent you know our my family like made and feeling embarrassed about sharing food with people and what it would mean to not have that shame and to feel the kind of security of others people other people's openness to me and like welcoming of me and how that translates into like yeah what you said like the that our relationship to food and our relationship to food that may seem unfamiliar to us is correlated, it translates into like our relationship to people, our relationship to people who whose experiences and, and backgrounds and, and don't look like ours. When we can't, when we don't know, when we don't necessarily have the ability to fully empathize, but to still see the value, to still see the humanity and to have security that that people will still view you that way, you know. I'm I'm laughing a little bit inside because I think of like the moments when people are so surprised that I know anything about food that's not black. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like when like when I make autoscaldo mm-hmm. and people are like, what? <laughs> like the fact that some of my friends used to like their their cousins or something would come over and they'd be like oh this is our other cousin from the other side of our family he's from Mindanao like <laughs> because of the way that like the people from Mindanao look similar to black mm. people and like and also that like like being able to share food skills being able to share gathering skills but just thinking about how like yeah like part of my Part of my upbringing, particularly in uh, junior high and high school, was growing up around uh, Filipino and Chamorro folks mm-hmm. and learning how to cook in those spaces, like learning what food exists in those spaces, learning not to drop fish sauce on the stove, like, Oof. you know, or being like, oh, that's Fatis. Like, nobody was scratching their ass. It's just fish sauce. <laughs> I mean, but like, I only know that because of my experiences actually being in practice of being in community with people. Exactly. Not theorizing and not just being able to be like, oh, that smells weird. And then like never, never like being close enough to a person to know why that thing smells like that. And then learning the beauty of why it smells like that. Exactly. Taste enhance all of my own cooking through it, you know? Yeah, I just think that that is the beauty of being able to practice food ways with people. Mm -hmm. You know what? Yeah, the food will tell you. The food will tell you. Oh, wow. Yeah, like it just feels like, you know, the relationship to food will tell you whether or not we're looking at theory or practice. Thank you so much for being part of this. I'm so, so grateful for you. I'm grateful 
for your work, but I'm, I'm just grateful for your friendship. I appreciate you so much. So thank you for being part of this. I want to reiterate one thing that Paris said. It's important to know that unconsciously, the way that we gather food and prepare food is inherently political because it teaches us how to value people. At Nourish, we let food take center stage because we know it's a vehicle for human connection. We know that it is through the conversations we have over a meal or the traditions we carry forward through a recipe that we build our collective capacity to demand and to win something greater than what is currently in front of us. Thank you so much to Paris for sharing a beautiful conversation with me. I also want to give a huge shout out to all the folks at KVRU who have supported us in producing this podcast. For more stories like the ones you heard today, you can find us at thenourishbook.com and on Facebook and Instagram at nourishbooksea. While we close out this chapter in partnership with KVRU, we will, of course, continue storytelling, so be sure to stay tuned on our social media. And until we meet again, keep eating, keep sharing, and keep fighting for a better world.